The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. In Jeremiah 29, the Lord gives the prophet an instruction to write a letter to the exiles living in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken the cream of the crop from Jerusalem, the royalty, the children of nobles, the skilled, skilled craftsmen, leaving the city destitute in order to enrich his own capital city. Well, rather than resent or rebel against the king, Jeremiah instructs the exiles to build houses, plant gardens, to get married, to have children, to increase in number and do not decrease, and to pray, to pray for the city, to pray for its peace in prosperity, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We live in America, a place I believe more akin to Babylon than to the promised land. How are we to live as exiles? And how are we to raise up our covenant children in a foreign land? Well, I believe our text tonight gives us insight into the means that God desires us to use to equip and disciple our children, that they might be a blessing to the nations and glorify his holy name. I read from Daniel chapter 3. I will skim over a few verses for time's sake, but I begin here in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on top of the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He gathers his various officers. And in verse 4, the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. The music sounds. The people obey. But in verse 8, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? 
or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? These men replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with these men. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times, hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up these men and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up these men. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't, these, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So these men came out of the fire, and the satraps and other officers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. This is God's holy inspired word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In chapter 1 of Daniel, we learn that these men had been selected, had been chosen to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. They were given three years of instruction to be schooled in the language and the literature of the Babylonians, which would be the equivalent, perhaps, of an undergraduate or postgraduate degree. And, of course, the intention of the Babylonians was to indoctrinate these exiles that they might assimilate to Babylonian culture, to adopt their traditions, and even their religions. But counter to the intentions of the teachers and mentors, their efforts failed on these four men, these three men and their friend Daniel. These four Hebrews are inoculated against the pandemic of pagan and culturalization. We learn in chapter 1 that these men refused the meats offered to them that had been sacrificed to idols, and yet appeared healthier than all their fellow students. And they appeared before the king, 
ten times better than all the magicians and wise men of Babylon. How did these young men resist the pressures of conformity and maintain their devotion to Yahweh, their covenant God, far away from home, likely separated from their parents and surrounded by very unhealthy and ungodly influences? We face these same questions today. How might we raise our covenant children that they might flourish in modern Babylon to the glory of God. I want to present to you three things I believe we find in this text. Three time-tested principles about effective discipleship of our covenant children. The first is to instill in them a Christian world and life view. What we believe about life and about God drives the way that we think. It determines the way we respond to the challenges we face. It's a determining factor in our own behavior. These men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, respond to the command of the king, which is accompanied with a grave threat, death by fire, a most terrible and painful way to die. They say this, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. These men have a big view of God. Their God is powerful enough to save them from certain death. A big view of God equips us to handle life's difficulties, disappointments, Children who grow up believing in a sovereign, all-powerful God have the spiritual resources necessary to resist temptation, to persevere through trials, to trust God in the midst of adversity. But notice also their continuing response in verse 18. They say, But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These men not only have a big view of God, they also understand that they may have to suffer for his namesake. These men have a cross-centered view of life. They count their lives very little compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the Lord their God. Jesus taught us that anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. These three Hebrew men were willing to give up their lives out of loyalty to Almighty God rather than bow down to worthless idols. You and I have the charge to present to our children a a compelling view of God, a life worth living for His sake, a life worth giving for His name and for His glory. So let us impress upon our young people a biblical worldview, of a high view of God, a low view of man, and a big view of the cross. Secondly, what do our young people need in order to flourish as disciples of Jesus Christ? Not only do they need a big view of God, notice how these three men have one another. 
We need community. Christian friends are absolutely essential. If you watch some of those natural wildlife videos put together by National Geographic, Planet Earth, or other sources, you'll notice a common trend about the way a predator pursues a prey. The cheetah chasing down gazelles. The wolf pack hunting elk. They always go after the stray. They seek the young and those who are isolated away from the pack. It's an easier kill. As Mr. Seldomridge pointed out earlier, James 5 tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have to protect the pack. You and I have a charge to go after the strays. We need to make the church home to our young people, a place of community where they are loved and accepted. We need to instill in our young people the priority of fellowship with other Christians. I had a conversation just today with a parent of a teen who's struggling with a child who is drifting away from the Lord in large measure due to friendships that are not rooted in Christ. How important it is for us to encourage our children to pray for them, to have godly friends, to reach non-believers, but not at the expense of keeping their primary fellowship with fellow followers of Christ. I think we also see from this text that the truth of God's word has to be fleshed out, not only in a community of peers, but in relationship with a mentor, which is the third key for effective discipleship. A mentor is somebody who has wisdom and experience and is willing to invest him or herself in the life of a young person. Now, we don't know who the mentors were for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we see the fruit of their labor. These men were prepared for the time when they would be stolen away from their families, when they would be forced to assimilate into a pagan culture. I can look back upon my own pilgrimage and see God's faithfulness to raise up for me and send into my life mentors. The most prominent, the man who led me to Christ when I was 16 years old, a 70-year-old man named Jack Morrison, who had a heart for hurting and troubled teens, a man who was instrumental in my faith and was available to me throughout my formative years in late high school and college. A mentor is somebody available. A mentor listens, demonstrates compassion, is bold to tell the truth even when the truth hurts. Parents, may we pray and eagerly seek mentors for our children, to be mentors for them. May we encourage our children to build relationships with other godly adults. There will come a time when our children may find it more comfortable talking to another adult about an issue in their lives. Let us encourage that. And may we as the church body minister to one another, keeping the vows we make regularly at every covenant baptism to be available to our young people. These three things, a Christian world and life view, community, fellowship with the saints, and good mentors 
are three of the keys for effective discipleship. Yeah, when you boil it all down, there's really just three things that we have in our arsenal. We teach our young people the Word of God. We model for them, we demonstrate before them what it means to follow Christ. And thirdly, we pray. We're on our knees praying for God's work in their lives. And ultimately, it's a matter of faith. We do the hard work of a farmer, but we trust God to bring the rain, to send the sunshine, to bring to fruition the work of plowing and sowing so we might enjoy reaping the Lord's harvest. There comes a time for every person of faith when his or her faith is tested by fiery trials. And our children's response largely depends upon the foundation that has been laid for them. Notice from the story in Daniel 3 that it was in the fire that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego met the Lord, the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. It's in the midst of the fire, in the crisis itself, that we meet the Lord to provide for us in our time of need. All of the work that we do in teaching and discipling our young people is a work of preparation. As we engage with our young people, as we listen to our youth, as we try to apply to them the teachings of God's word, we are preparing them to meet and recognize Jesus in the flames. It's when they see the reality of the gospel in our lives, a lifestyle characterized by sacrifice, humility, graciousness, where we can acknowledge and confess our sin to our children to acknowledge how deeply mommy or daddy needs Jesus. When our children see this, they are prepared to face their crises of faith faith, and meet Jesus when they walk through the fires. Let me exhort us tonight to labor, to pray that our covenant children might be a blessing to Babylon and bring much glory to the name of Christ. Amen.